If you have a Bible, turn to Philippians chapter 4. As you're, you're turning there, um, I just want to say a welcome to Alan and Travis and Nathan who are expected to be in the woods backpacking this weekend and due to, to weather conditions had to, had to come out. You wouldn't know it looking this morning, but at the elevation they were at, having sleet and snow and not anticipating it, so apparently the weather didn't really forecast that, and they decided to be safe rather than sorry and to pull out. So uh, welcome to you guys this morning. Glad you're, you're here and that you're safe. And um, also want to thank, say just thank you to the, the praise band and also for, uh, for Dennis and, um, um, and, um, and Jake for, for being here early and, and getting things set up. I came in and um, they were already rolling and uh, the guys were back there running tech and it was, it was just encouraging to see that. So thank you all for, for doing that. Um, all right, Philippians chapter 4, verses uh, 10 through 19. Paul writes and says, But I rejoice in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Not that I speak from, from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to, get, how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I've learned, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Christ, through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am amply supplied. Having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. And my God will supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you this morning and we, we deal with a, a tender and difficult subject amongst Christians, that of the, the proper use of, of possessions and finances, both the incoming of those and the sending out of them. I pray that your grace would cover us, Father, that we would look honestly at your word, we would look honestly at our lives, and, and, and that you would do the work of assessing where our hearts are. Father, may we see you as good and glorious and the ever-present provider for the mission at hand. May we get behind that mission and desire to glorify you in the bountiful gifts that you give to us. Speak to us now through your word. It's in Christ's name that I pray. So here we come to the end of Philippians and, and Paul gets to the, the whole reason behind why he's writing this letter in the first place. It's it's that he's grateful for the financial gift that the Philippians have, have given to him. Now, I, I don't know that we've, we've, we've clarified this, but, but I think it's helpful to note where Paul is actually at this point. He's, he's in a prison in Rome, 
But notice that while he's in this prison, at the end of Acts, Acts tells us that he's under house arrest. Okay, he's not sort of he's not in the dungeons. He's under house arrest. He's chained to a to a Roman guard 24-7. But the end of Acts tells us that Paul was responsible for paying his own rent. So he's sort of in this kind of catch-22 situation where he's he's in prison, he's chained to a guard. He has the, some freedom to sort of come and go um, and to receive um, guests, to receive visitors. He can write. He has some freedom, but he's, he's bound. But he's also responsible for paying his own rent. No, no, that's an odd situation. You're under arrest, but you've got to pay for your lodging, basically. But he's limited, which also means that he's limited in his ability to procure funds for himself, to be a tent maker or to to get the necessary means for paying for his rent. So you can sort of see the situation that Paul's in. Limited funds, limited mobility, limited ability to, to work. And so obviously his funds are going to dry up at some point. So he's in a position where he has needs, and the Philippians send this gift, and you can see his reason for rejoicing. I have a need, I'm in this situation, Lord, the Lord's given me an opportunity to still have some freedom to reach out, to minister, to write. But if I don't have the funds I need, something worse can happen to me. Something where I'll be in a worse situation. And so the Lord provides funds through the Philippian church. Now, the Philippian church, for all we know, has been silent in, in their giving to Paul for about 10 years. That, that's, the, that's the time span that... that Biblical scholars say is between when they gave the gift of Paul in Thessalonica and then him being imprisoned in Rome. There's about a 10-year span there where Scripture's silent. We're not told whether they maintained a relationship financially, but from that verse 10 where Paul says, you were concerned but you lacked opportunity, we get the sense that there's really no gift that's been sent. And so by the Lord's sovereign design, Epaphroditus shows up with this gift on Paul's doorstep, and he's just immensely thankful. He's immensely thankful. Thank you for this gift that provides my needs, and so I can continue. I can continue to exercise the freedom to proclaim God's word as the Lord has, has provided. So you, you see sort of the situation that Paul's in and why he's grateful for this, for this gift. And, and so what we read here in this last section of Philippians is, is Paul is a generous, or Paul is a gracious receiver. He's gracious in his receiving of this gift. But not only that, that the Philippians are a generous giver. And this is what we, we want as Christians, what Alan, I want for Haven Rage, for you as believers. We want to see generosity in our, in our giving for needs and graciousness in our receiving. Not only in graciousness of receiving of gifts, but of anything. You know, as you get Money for working, graciousness in receiving that. Any, any, influ or any income of possessions, of money, of anything is a gift that's given. So we, we want us to be a body of believers who are generous in our giving, gracious in our receiving. But that doesn't merely just happen by issue of command. You can't just say, well, be generous. We'll be gracious because those are effects of something. Those are not the root. They're the fruit of something. And we see that here, here with Paul. Because Paul, 
Paul belabors this point of appreciation. He could just said, hey, thank, I rejoice. I rejoice in the Lord that you've given this gift. It's met my needs. Thank you. And then moved on. But he belabors this point. He stretches this out over nine verses. And he does so because he knows the dangers associated with the exchange of currency, with the exchange of money. And he wants to guard against any misunderstanding that would diminish God's glory in this exchange. That's what he's after. That's why he belabors this point. And so for Paul, the root of exalting God's glory gives fruit or gives rise to the fruit of graciousness and to generosity. Because it, it, the underlying theme with the, with the Philippians that Paul emphasizes is that their desire for God to be glorified and their honoring God and their love for God overflows in generosity to Paul. So you see how the, that root uh, of exalting God and loving God overflows in the fruit of generosity and gracious re- receiving. So he, here's, here's what I want to ask this, this overarching question this morning. How do we as Christians live in such a way that our use of possessions, the use of our money makes much of God. How do we do that? Because I believe that the fruit of that is gracious giving and, or, or is generous giving and gracious receiving. Everybody kind of following me? And here's, here's what I want. This morning, I want to use this section in Philippians as a case study for us, for, for that, that theme of, Generous giving and gracious receiving. I want to use this as a, as a case study. But like I said, that's the effect of something. So I want, to make, I want to give an answer to that question. How do we live in such a way that our use of money, both of giving it and receiving it, seeks to exalt and make much of God? And I want to argue that from a couple different points in Scripture. And then the application is really the text we're in. So after making that argument, I'm going to go, go to the text and just draw out several points of application that we see. Okay, so that, that's what I want to do. So this is a big picture uh, aspect of the text that we're, that we're dealing with. So we'll do that this morning, and then the next couple weeks, Alan will preach several specific points from this text within. Because there's a lot that can be said about contentment. There's a lot that can be said about God's provision for good works. And so we don't want to miss out on that. So we're going to go there the next couple weeks, but this morning, it's big picture. Okay, everybody following me? Everybody lost? Okay, that's where we're going this morning. So the question is, how do we live in such a way that our use of money makes much of God? And I think we struggle with this as, as Christians. And you know this because anytime finance is brought up within a church, what happens? Everybody kind of reaches for their wallet, makes sure nobody's sneaking around behind them to pull something out, right? It tightens up. Um, we, we struggle with this, and we come to passages in Scripture, and, and we, we risk moving the pendulum too far one direction or too far the other. We come to passages like Matthew 5.24, where Jesus says, no one can serve two masters. He cannot serve both wealth and God, for he will either, he will love the one, he'll hate the other, right? And, and, and we take, we come to that, we go, okay, well, what do we, what do, we do with that? What do we, how do you how do you live in such a way that you exalt God with your, with your money? That's, that's the question. And we can go to other texts that might demonstrate that, well, God wants us just basically to be poor, 
right? You go to, the, go to the story of Jesus and the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and says, you know, how do, I, how do I gain eternal life? And Jesus goes to him and says, well, sell all your possessions and give to the poor and you'll have treasure in heaven. And the man goes away upset because he's very wealthy. And Jesus turned to his disciples and says, you see this man? It's harder for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of an eel. And you could draw out from that the mistaken idea that, okay, well, the principle of the story is that poverty, poverty and giving to, good, to others equals godliness. You could, you could walk away with that, with that understanding, and you'll totally miss the point that Jesus is making. What about where Jesus says, the, what is it, foxes have, I just footnoted this, foxes, the foxes and animals have, no, or, or have a den, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head? Okay, well, then if we want to be like Jesus... We can't have a house. We've got to, we've got to live under a bridge somewhere. And, and there was a movement not too long ago where Christians were, were doing this. It's, it's that poverty equaled godliness. It's a, that's, easy to, that's easy to buy into. Where Paul writes to Timothy, and he says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, and those who pursue it plunge themselves into destruction. So, Obviously, if we say anything that's true of, of, of those verses, there's a danger with money, and we have to be careful. But money is also essential to our life, right? There is an essential element. You have to put food on your table, right? You, you, you need clothing. You need shelter. And there are texts in Scripture that exalt this. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children, and the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Throughout the Old Testament, you see lots of examples where, where God gives instructions to the Israelites to, uh, to, alleviate, uh, to, to relieve poverty. He gives instructions to those who are sowing a field that, that says, you know, put gleanings at the edge of the field so the poor will have something to eat. You read the story of Ruth. This is how Ruth meets Boaz. She goes to the edge of the field knowing that God has given this command and she, she gleans from it. She gleans from that excess and that's how she meets Boaz. And you have other scriptures throughout the Old Testament that God hates poverty and he wants to provide for the poor. You have that in the New Testament, right? Paul takes his first missionary journey and he's, he's collecting funds for the poor in Jerusalem. So, in order to alleviate poverty, somebody who has has to give something to someone who does not have, right? You see this, that, that, that possessions and money are necessary in order for that to, to happen. So, so there's a balance there. there, there there's a, and this creates a difficulty for us because the natural question we ask when we, when we start talking about finances and being faithful as Christians is, well, how much do I have to give? How much can I keep? Can I buy this? Can I buy that? Where's the, where's the balance here? And there's not a law that's given that says X amount. There's no, there's no rule in the New Testament that says tithes 10%, by the way. That doesn't exist. No. There's not a law that's given. And, and so what is the overarching thing about that Scripture teaches us about money is that it's necessary, but it's dangerous. It's necessary, it's dangerous. It's like oxygen. You have to have oxygen in order to live, right? You, 
You, you have to breathe in oxygen, but too much of it will kill you. It's called oxygen to toxicity. And, and people who are divers, they have to be concerned about this because they cannot breathe pure oxygen for long extended periods of time. Babies who are in the NICU and things, the medical professionals have to be concerned about this and they have to pay attention to those oxygen levels. Um, the air that we breathe is not pure oxygen. It's mixed with other chemicals. And, and so it's necessary, but it's dangerous. It's necessary, but it's dangerous. That's the, that's the principle within Scripture is that money is a necessary thing for you, but you better watch out. Not that too much of it will kill you, but it will provide the means through which you could be destroyed. That you could be destroyed. But we struggle with that. We struggle with that pendulum swing of how do we live in such a way that our use of what is necessary but is dangerous makes much of God and not makes much of ourselves. Do you feel that tension? Do you feel that tension when you go out and you, you drive down the highway and the Christmas time is coming and you know, it's buy this, buy that. You watch TV commercials and it's, you know, man, this is your life. Live it now. Go on all these vacations. Make this the pursuit of your life, right? Because the world that we live in, the culture that we live in, exalts, exalts that, that, that idea of pursue happiness. The pursuit of happiness is, is the chief. I mean, that's, that's king in our culture, right? How do you, how do, you do that? How do, you, how do you balance that? How do you balance it when, when someone who's in poverty from another country comes to your doorstep or moves in next door? Leslie and I were talking about this over breakfast this morning, no? where, where there's a struggle within our culture with, with refugees coming into the country, and what do we do with this? You know, how, do we, how do we as a culture deal with this? And you may not be in a position to make those political decisions. But what happens when that refugee moves in next door? Generosity? Has that, has that work? You, wanna, you need, but you want to be generous? Has it work? Can you live in such a way that your use of money makes much of God? So that's where we are. So I want to give an answer to this question, and I want to argue it from a couple of different points in Scripture, and then... Hopefully, the natural overflow of that is the application of our text. So let me give this, this answer. How do we live in such a way that our use of money serves to glorify God? Here's my answer. Money serves to glorify God by demonstrating, both in our receiving and our giving it, that God is our greatest treasure. When the mission of our life is to be a disciple-maker, of an infinitely good and worthy God, our possessions become tools for the success of that mission. Let me say this, let me say it again. Money serves the glory of God by demonstrating both in our receiving it and our giving it, which means purchasing stuff too, by the way. That's not just in charity giving, that's in purchasing. That God is our greatest treasure. And when the mission of our life is to be a disciple maker, and I, clar I clarified that, I know him for being verbose when I write out definitions, so <laughs> that's just me. But I clarify that. To be a disciple maker is to, is to help others know and live in such a way that you show and teach and tell others that God is their greatest treasure. 
right? Whatever is your greatest treasure, you want other people to know that is their greatest treasure. I think that's a general principle we can say is true. So a disciple maker is to help others see and know God as their greatest treasure. When that's the mission of your life, that's the mission that's given in the New Testament for Christians, that's the mission of your life, then your possessions, your money, your house, your car, all of those things become tools for the success of that mission. Okay? So now, now I want to I show that from a couple different places in Scripture. I got three, three points here to say, I think this is a biblical definition. This is a biblical truth. One, Paul had an unwavering hunger for God to be glorified in the lives of people, in himself and in others. And money and possessions was merely a conduit for that mission. One, you see that in Philippians. At the beginning of Philippians, Paul thanks the, thanks the Philippians for their gift. He says, thank you for being partakers in the grace of God with me. I think, I think he's alluding to, thank, you know, we talked about this early on in our, in our preaching series, that Paul was in, in immediately thanking them for the gift that they sent, but it wasn't just the money. You're partakers with me in the work of the gospel. So he thanks them there, and then he thanks them again specifically, um, or more directly here in 410, um, where, where he says, I thank the Lord that you've revived your concern for me. You sent the gift. I thank you for it. I'm amply supplied, as, as he says uh, in, in uh, verse 18. So we see those two at the, at the beginning and the end uh, of, of Philippians. It's the whole reason he's writing the letter. But in the middle, he packs these huge statements that it's not about the Benjamins for him. It's not about the dollars. It's not about the gift. Because if it was, he wouldn't be able to make statements like this. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or what about this one? I count all things as rubbish. I count all things as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish so that I may gain him. Or, or in, in, chapter, uh, in chapter 3, right after he's... He's warned and talked about those whose, um, whose God is their appetite and they pursue the things of this world. He counters that and says, but our citizenship is in heaven from whom we eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what about I've learned to be content in all circumstances that I'm in? You can't make statements like that if wealth and God is king in your life. He sees the necessity of it, but the mission is bigger. The, the, the mission of seeing God exalted in the lives of other people through the gospel, that's, that's his mission. That's what he's all about. And, and, and the finances he receives or that he gives, they're merely conduits of that. Merely conduits of that. Paul worshipped a big God who'd given him a mission. And he saw that as greater than the petty pursuit of building a name for himself in this world. That's what drove Paul. One of the places we see this is in 1 Corinthians 9, 15, and 18. So right, Paul writes to the, to the Corinthians, and in this section, he's, he's talking to them, and he's warning them about using their liberty in the gospel 
in such a way that would be a stumbling block for other people. Be careful. You have a lot of liberty. You have a lot of freedoms in the gospel that you would not have under the old covenant. You have freedoms. But be careful about using those freedoms in such a way that would cause another brother or sister to stumble in their their faith. He warns them about that. And he points to himself and his own posture towards finances as an example of this. And he, and he, he uses this by, by giving an argument, giving arguments for church leaders being paid in their vocation. He says it's legitimate for this. So this is a right that they have. Uh, he, said this, he said this is legitimate and they should work in hope. They should, should work in hope of this. And he says in spite of that, we're in... Uh, in, in um, hang on. I'll lose my spot. In verse 15, he says, In spite of that, I have used none of these things. And I'm not writing these things so that it will be done so on my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe is it me if I do not preach the gospel? For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward. But if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What is Paul saying? He said, look, he said, I, I may have the freedom to get my livelihood from my preaching of the gospel. But I don't want anyone to think that, that it's about the money for me. So I'll be a tent maker. I'll, I'll, I'll subject myself to, to that in, in order that I can be free, that I can be free from that. They wouldn't. Uh, that, that no one would misunderstand me. Because Paul, is, he's, he's going into all these new places. Nobody knows him. He's not establishing himself. And it would be very easy in a lot of these cities for people who peddle religion to see that and point at that at Paul. Oh, it's just about the money for him. And Paul says, you can't, you can't say that when I don't get my livelihood from it. Better that God is exalted in my preaching and the, and the honest and pure display of the gospel than for people to misunderstand it. So he says, I'll be a tent maker. I'll be a, I'll be a tent maker. He, he says, I'll, I'll make tents and I'll, I'll endure being worried about whether I have enough fabric to make the tent for tomorrow. I'll endure whether, you know, that customer who comes and is not satisfied with my stitch work. Right? Everybody who works in, in you know, if you, if you work in culture, you know the things that keep you up at night about your job. Paul says, I'll, I'll endure that. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll endure that so that my preaching the gospel will be from a pure conscience. It's not about the money for me. It's, not, it's about the mission. It's about the mission. So why did Paul see it this way? Why did this mission, this vision, grip Paul so much that that's the way he saw the use of finances. He saw money this way because he valued the price God had paid for him. Listen to what Paul says later to, to the second letter to the, to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Here, here's the gospel, you know? Paul, Paul said, I know the price that was paid for my redemption. It was the Son of God. 
And that was a real price. That wasn't just some, you know, spiritual, ethereal exchange that happened. That was a real price. Because think about this. What's the price of your redemption? What's the price of your salvation? Do you know that God could have just, at, at any point in history, wiped humanity off the face of the earth and said, I'm going to start over? He could have. And he would have been just in doing it. But he would not have been loving. Here's the scale balance. If God genuinely is loving and God is genuinely just, then, then he's got to uphold both of them. Okay? Here, if in financial terms, here's the ledger. What, how does that happen? How does God main, you know, stay 100% just and 100% loving? He could have just said, well, I'm just going to ignore those sins. I'm just going to turn the other way. He would have been merciful, but he would not have been just. Back to that ledger. How does that, how does that happen? What's the price of your redemption to balance the scales? The Son of God. The very Son of God who has infinite riches says, I'll, I'll set aside my privileges. I'll come to earth and be born as a human subjected under the law. I'll, I'll suffer under Pontius Pilate and I'll, I, won't, I won't speak a word even though I could call down a legion of angels. I won't, I won't do it. Because this is the price that has to be paid for their sin. Paul says, this is what's been done for you. This is the generosity of God for us. So that, as he writes to the, to the Ephesians, so that God might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Paul said, this is the price that's been paid God has demonstrated generosity towards us. It's up to us then to appropriate that, to live in light of the generous gift that he's given to us, and in light of the, the great cost of our salvation. Not in a debt sense, like, well, I've got to pay this back, but rejoicing in it. Been ushered into the fellowship of God. All of the riches that are at his disposal are available for me for the mission of displaying to others that God is supremely valuable. It's the gospel in a nutshell. Paul saw that and he said, I'm, I'm, I'm all about that. I'll subject myself to whatever I have to. And finances, whether much or little, will be used through me for, for God's glory. That's what I'm about. Paul saw that. Secondly, Jesus, Jesus taught that a faithful disciple wisely and generously uses his possessions in light of his eternal reward. Luke chapter 16. Jesus sitting with his disciples. There's Pharisees that are around that are hearing them. And these Pharisees are lovers of money. He, he makes that point a little later in the chapter. And Jesus wants to teach his disciples something, but also... Bring about conviction in these, in these Pharisees. So he tells, the, the, he tells the parable of the shrewd manager. I'll read this to you. He says, There was a rich man who had a manager, and this manager was reported to him as squandering his possessions. And he called him to him, and he said, 
What is this that I hear about you? Give an account of your management, for you can no longer be a manager. The manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. He's an accountant. If you're not catching on, he's an accountant. He's he's siphoned off the top of his manager's money. He's kept it for himself. His manager gets wind of this and says, I'm coming to you. Give me my money and you're fired. And the the guy looks at himself and goes, I don't have any skills. I, I I got nothing. When I lose this job, I lose everything. And so, verse 5, he summoned each one of his master's debtors. Oh, he says, I I know what I shall do, verse 4. So that when I'm removed from the management, people will welcome me into their homes. And he summoned each one of his master's debtors, and he began saying to the first, how much do you owe my master? And he said, a hundred measures of oil. And the manager said to him, take your bill, sit down quickly, write 50. And he said to another, "Uh, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill, write 80. And his master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly, because he has acted shrewdly. And then Jesus says this, for the sons of this age are more shrewd in relation to their own kind than the sons, excuse me, than the sons of light. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by means of the wealth of unrighteousness so that when it fails, when unrighteous wealth fails, they will receive you into the eternal dwellings. He who has, is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in a very little thing is unrighteous also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the use of unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true, who will entrust true riches to you? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other. He'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And here's, here's that same text from Matthew 5. You cannot serve both God and wealth. What's the point of this parable? Jesus isn't saying, get rid, Pharisees, get rid of all your money. He, he's saying, he's saying if, if the people in this world recognize If this man values the fellowship of others over what riches can buy, how much more should the followers of Christ value the riches of heavenly fellowship more than what wealth can procure for us? Do you see that? That the the shrewd manager realized my my money's not going to do what I put my hope in. Right? Is I, I, I need the fellowship of other people. And he's, he's totally wrong and you know, all they did. And it was a very shrewd thing. And Jesus isn't exalting him, but he's saying, look, if this man figured that out, how much more should the follower of Christ, should the Christian recognize this money's not going to buy from me what I, you know, what, I, what I hope it's going to? Use it to procure a heavenly reward. He's not saying that we should use money to buy our way into heaven. If you, if you come away from the parable with that, you make mincemeat out of it. You make absolute mincemeat out of it. Rather, what he's saying is he said we should use money in such a way that it demonstrates where our true treasure is. Let me give you an example. Let's say you're, you're at work in an office and your, your department's working on a very big project and your boss comes to you and he says, look, 
Here's a thousand dollars. I'm gonna loan it to you. I want you to go out and buy this list of supplies for the project. That's your only role in the, in the project. That's your only role in the project. And you know that everyone involved in the project is individually going to get a million dollars at the end of the project if it succeeds. And your boss has guaranteed its success. He has staked his entire career on the success of that project. And and you know this thing's. I mean, it, it's a, you know, it's a done deal. And this is your role in the project. Take the $1,000, go buy, buy the things on the, on the list. Would you then go and use $500 of that to go buy a new computer? No, that's foolishness. You dumb, as Alan says. That's foolishness. That's foolishness. Why would you do that? You use the money for the mission, not for selfish gain. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, here's the small thing. Be faithful in the small thing. Use it for the mission. Use it for the mission because your heavenly reward is infinitely greater than whatever these dollars can, can purchase for you, for your own gain here. That's his point. That's his point. And the third thing. When we know God as good and gracious, wealth will not snare us, but be freed up for the holy good of others, which is our mission. When we know God as good and gracious, wealth will not snare us, but be freed up for the holy good of others, which is our mission. This is from Philippians 6, 6 through 19. Paul writes to Timothy, who's the pastor at Ephesus, and gives him a lot of instruction and one of the things he says is, he says, Timothy, be careful. Watch out for false teachers who will come in and think that godliness is a means of financial gain, financial prosperity. Beware the, 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 the TV evangelist, you know, in, in the stereotypical sense. So watch out for that. But then he says, um, oops, I'm not in the right spot. There we go. But then he says, but... Godliness actually is a means of great gain when it's accompanied by contentment. For we brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it. If we have food and covering with these, we shall be content. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge men into ruin and destruction. John Piper writes this. He says, money's chief attraction, money's chief attractions are the power it gives and the pride it feeds. Paul says, don't let this happen. He's telling Timothy, he said, don't, don't let this happen to you. He said, instead, and he follows this by encouraging, he said, instead, Timothy, pursue godliness. He says, flee from these things, you man of God. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. And you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. He exhorts Timothy in this, but then he comes back to this, this aspect of, uh, of dollars. He instructs the, the wealthy Christians. Well, what do the wealthy Christians do? And he doesn't say they've they got to give all their money away. They, they've got to be poor. Poverty is the key here. How do you guard yourself from the love of money? Poverty. That's not what he says. Verse 15, or excuse me, verse 17, he says, instructs those who are rich... He's talking about within the church. He's speaking to the pastor. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things 
to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. He says, in your finances, fix your eyes on God. Pursue God. See his provision as a gift, not a right. Enjoy the gift. But he says, be ready to share. Be eager and ready to share and give. The point is, the point Paul, Paul is making is God's generosity, generosity towards us begets generosity to others. The more we know God is generous, the more we're freed to be generous towards others. But the counter to that is also true. The less we know God is generous, the less we see and believe that God is generous, the more we're going to want to hold on to our stuff. That's a, that's a simple, simple biblical principle. So, how do we live in such a way that our use of money makes much of God? Back to the answer. Money serves the glory of God by demonstrating, both in our receiving and giving it, that God is our greatest treasure. When the mission of our life is to be a disciple maker of an infinitely good and worthy God, our possessions become tools for the success of that mission. Like we see that Jesus, that was, that was what Jesus taught. That was what, that was what Paul was after. You see that throughout, the, throughout the, the scriptures. So with that in mind, when the gospel's our mission, what happens in our life? We've got a clear, unwavering devotion to the gospel as the mission of our life. And our possessions and our money, all the things that we have are focused on that. What happens? Okay, now we're to our text. Isn't that great? I'll be, I'll be quick, I promise. Because I hope that laying that foundation will just make this clear. I've got seven points, and I'll move through them quickly. When the, go- and the, when the gospel is the mission of your life, God gets the praise for any material gain you receive. Hang on. I've got several markers here. <laughs> Paul wrote, and he, uh, in, in Philippians 4.10, he says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. For your gift. Rejoice greatly in the Lord for your gift. When the gospel's the mission of your life, who's going to get the praise for anything that you receive? Whether that's your paycheck, whether you're strapped and you're struggling and there's a check in the mail that you don't even know who it's from, or somebody shows up on your doorstep with dinner. Who gets the glory for that? When the gospel's the mission of your life, God gets the glory of it. Pride and power are undercut. It completely undercut because all of those things are given to God. So let me ask you, in your financial status right now, whether you have much or whether you have little, who's getting the glory? Who's getting the praise in what you have? When the gospel is the mission of your life, grace clothes your relationships instead of guilt. Verse 10 You've revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Can't help but think that where Paul was in his situation, he gets this gift. They've been sort of absent from him for 10 years. All of a sudden, Epaphroditus shows up. There's got to be the temptation to go, you should have sent this earlier. You know, 
Let me lay a guilt trip on you, you know, for, for, what, for, for not giving this earlier, to press their conscience for their lack of giving. But he, but he doesn't. Instead, he, he assumes the best of them. Maybe he knows it. Maybe Epaphroditus tells us we're not, we're not told. But, but he, he accounts their absence in giving due to circumstances. You lacked opportunity. You lacked, maybe there was political unrest. Maybe there was something going on. I, I, you know, Paul doesn't elaborate. He doesn't say. Maybe they were financially strapped and they couldn't give. He assumes the best of them. You wanted to give, but there was, you know, the Lord closed that door. The Lord closed that door, and now you've given. Now you've given. I'm so grateful for it. I'm so grateful for it. It's tempting for us when we're in need to assume the worst of people. It's so, it's so easy. so easy to get sucked into that. But when the gospel is your mission God is, and God is your provider, he's responsible for sending the help. And he won't send it a minute too early and he won't send it a minute too late. Be gracious to others when you feel the tension of time and need as well as when help does come. It's also, be, it's also tempting on the receiving or, or, or the giving end of that as well. Right? You ever been in a store or somewhere or somebody come up to you and they sort of try and guilt trip you into giving to a good cause? There are countless good causes, you know, philanthropic organizations that want and need money and genuinely are about good things. But if all of them come to you and you get berated with them and you just give everything away, then you cease to have something to give. So how do you decide who to give to and who not to? That's a, that's, a tough, that's a tough thing. That's a hard thing. When the gospel's the mission of your life, it frees us from the guilt and guides our giving. You'll grieve because you can't give to all organizations. You'll grieve because you can't help everything. But you'll be freed from the guilt of not giving at all because you look at the mission and say, it gives you an opportunity to reevaluate and go, okay, uh, is, is this what my life is about? Is this where, my, is this where I want my money you know, to go? I hate that I can't give to this organization or that I can't help out 50 kids who are starving in, in, in Africa. I can't support that many. But I'm, I'm, I, I am about the mission. I am about the mission. Here's, here's, where, here's where I have peace because here's where I, here's where I am about the mission. It frees you from that. From that guilt. When the gospel is the mission of your life, your contentment rests on God's provision for that mission. Verse 11 and 13, this is where he says, I've learned the secret of being filled and going hung- hungry, of having abundance and suffering. Need I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul wants to guard against anyone thinking that money is king in his life. Money doesn't dictate how grateful I am, is what he's saying. He says, what's the secret of living in these circumstances? Whether I have much or I have little, without being trapped by the sparkle of wealth. He says, it's letting God and the gospel dictate the mission of my life. I think that's what he means by the all things in verse 13. That's a, that's a Christian t-shirt verse, the bumper sticker verse. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is not, I can do all things to exalt myself and pursue my own Personal, uh, personal glorifying happiness, and God's about that. 
That's totally wrong. Paul says, I can do all things for the mission that God has set out for me, whether I have much or I have, I have little. The gospel is the mission of your life. Your contentment rests on God's provision for that mission. Does that mean you're going to have a Ferrari? No, maybe not. Can't say that it will. I can't say that it won't. But if, if a functional vehicle is necessary for the, gospel, for the gospel intent and the good works that God has in your life for the carrying out of the mission of making disciples, then I can say God will provide you with what you need for that. It may not be glamorous, but it doesn't need to be glamorous. It needs to, be for, it needs to function for the mission. When the gospel is the mission of your life, the good, you seek the good of giving to others. Verses 10 or 14, Paul says, Nevertheless, you've done well to share with me in my affliction. He said, in spite of the fact that I can do all things for the mission of making disciples, whether I have much or I have little, he said, it's a good thing that you gave. You see how careful Paul is? He doesn't want to crush them he doesn't want to make it seem like their gift is just superfluous. Paul's not on this sort of higher spiritual plane of, well, material things don't matter. He's very careful. He says, he says it's a good thing that you gave. And when the gospel's the mission of your life, you seek the good of giving to others. And in, in doing so, you have to sometimes make hard decisions. You have to make sometimes hard decisions about when to give, when to purchase. All of those things come into play. Notice that the, the Philippians were financially less affluent because they gave to Paul. Right? I mean, that's a simple financial matter. Because they gave to Paul, they had less. Right? That when the gospel's the mission of your life, you're going to have less in the bank than if financial security were the chief mission of your life. doesn't mean that you can't seek financial security. But it means if, if accumulating wealth and storing it up for the future enjoyment of what wealth can provide for you, if that is your chief mission, then that you would have more in the bank than if the gospel is your mission. Can we say that that's true? I think that is true. Now, does that mean that you can't purchase a second home? Does it mean that you can't do an addition onto your house? Does it mean that you can't buy a new car? No, you have freedom to do those things. But the why and how of, why, uh, of doing those things demonstrates where your heart is. If you were to buy a second home, let's say, and say, well, I want to use this to be a, 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 re a resting place for those who are struggling and suffering. You have friends who are going through tough times and say, look, I've got a second home. I, I want you to, you're having a tough time. You know, I want you to go. I want you to use this as a, as a place of refuge for you. And you, maybe, maybe you put books and things in there for that. You, you, know, you, you use that. You, you, know, you say, this is why I, I buy this. Now, you say you, you add on to your house. You say, well, we want to do this because we want to take in foster kids. When Les and I were buying our house, we, we moved from a smaller house to a larger house. And we asked the question, do we need a bigger house? 
Why are we purchasing a bigger house? And we said we, we, want, we want to be able to, to show hospitality to people, to bring people into the house. You know, can we do that with a smaller house? Yes, but the Lord has provided us with the means of purchasing this house. And, and to have a backyard and say, we, maybe neighbor kids you know, who, are, you know, who are struggling, they're in a dysfunctional family, we'll have them a safe place where they can come and they can play. We want to invite people over, not so that they'll go, well, you've got a nice house, but so that they'll, they'll have comfort. You know? They'll be at peace. There was a gospel intent behind that. And we have to evaluate that. We have to go look at it and go, are we, are we doing this? You know, if, we, if it becomes all about us, then, then we're like, well, do we, we need to sell the house. No, it's not serving the mission. So we ask ourselves those, those questions. So we cultivate a desire and a discipline of the good of giving and being generous with all that the Lord has given to us for that mission. We see it as good. And we know it is good and not a burden. And not a burden. When the gospel is the mission of your life, you value the display of God's work over the gift itself. Verse 17, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. One of the chief characteristics of a genuine Christian is love for others. You see this throughout the scriptures. Greater love has no man than himself than he laid down his life for his friends. And gracious giving is an expression of love, is evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. This is what Paul exalts in the, in the Philippians. I know you're genuine believers and I see the work of the Spirit in your life because of your generosity. Because of your generosity. That your love for God has overflowed into your releasing funds for my provision, for my needs. Gracious, um, and, and lest we misunderstand Paul here, gracious giving does not purchase eternal life for us. Rather, it reveals on the ledger of our life God's deposits into our account. God's gracious deposits into our account. That God is at work in our life. So I encourage you to recognize real Christian honor, or real Christian virtue of generosity and honor it. When you see it, praise it, exalt it. Encourage the, the person you see it in. You know? And when you see it amongst you know, us as a church family. Encourage it. Encur- encourage that in, in other people. It's not about who has the most money, who has the most affluent, but who is generous with what God has given them. Whether that is much or whether that is little. Because that, that generosity gives evidence to, to true faith. That true faith is really there. When we hear testimonies, you know, about, about people... You know, folks get up here like we've had before and they give testimonies, you know, and they affirm, I'm a Christian. How do you know it? Just because they say it doesn't mean it's, you know, it's true. We listen for the work of the, of the Lord and their past, but not only that, when we interact with them, we're looking for fruits of the Spirit. We're looking for evidence and generosity and graciousness and receiving. Do they have that Spirit? Is that a characteristic of their life? And seeing it, you give praise to God for that because you know you're in the presence of a, uh, of a genuine follower of Jesus. 
And the gospel is the mission of your life. I've got two more. Any provision is sufficient. Verse 18, but I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I'm amply supplied. Remember, sit down with a child and you give them food or something. You give them something, maybe it's, maybe it's candy at Halloween and they go, was that it? I get one tiny little Reese's cup. Was that it? What's the implication? That's not sufficient. No. You little jerk, you should be, you should be grateful. Be grateful you get any candy. Right? The gospel is the mission of our life. Any provision is sufficient. And remember, in the Old Testament, God had given provisions for sacrifices for the wealthy and the poor. Right? The poor didn't have to come up with a, with a cow when they went to go offer certain sacrifices. A dove would do. And here is God, you know, who requires the sacrifice, but he's, he's, he's gentle to us. He's gracious to us. He's merciful. He accepts the cow and the dove alike. From the one who has little, he accepts the dove. From the one who has much, he accepts the, the cow. The viewed is acceptable. And Paul was grateful for what the Philippians said. He said, you've given an offering and it's, and it's acceptable, it's pleasing, it's sufficient. We're not told how much it was. Isn't that great? We're not told they'd give him 500 bucks. We don't know. But Paul says it was sufficient. Maybe they gave a lot. Maybe they gave a little. He says it's sufficient. I'm amply supplied. Let me ask you, are you today amply supplied for the mission of gospel work that God has laid out for you? Are you amply supplied? I'll be honest. Think about it. Are you amply supplied? Or, or are you going to God saying, is this all? Where, where's more? The last one. When the gospel is the mission of your life, you trust in God to provide all your needs to carry out that mission. Similar to the last one. Verse 18, or excuse me, verse 19. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. If God has done the harder thing of giving us Jesus as the, as the ransom to to buy us back for our redemption. Surely he can be trusted to give us the simple necessities of life in order to carry out the work he's designed for us. Notice again how careful Paul is. You've given out of what you have. The, the Philippian church is, is experiencing persecution. They're experiencing suffering. Paul references that previously in the, uh, in, in the letter. And he knows the temptation for them to give and then to just hold on. And go, okay, well now, you know, now we've given, now it's up to us to make that back up. To make that, and, 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 and the risk is that they'll shift their eyes off of the mission. And Paul says, if you know, God is, has been sufficient and can be trusted to supply for my needs, he, you can trust him to supply for your needs as well. It means there's, sometimes there's hard choices. No? Do we, do we give to this family that the Lord's put in our life that's in need, or do we, do we make this repair in the car? It's a hard choice. You got a necessity, you got a need. I can't tell you which one to do. No? But if you, if you give, then can God be trusted to provide the need 
the, the legitimate need that you have. Right? There's no, there's no hard and fast rule in Scripture that says, here's how much you give, here's when you give. Right? That would be Old Testament law. It's a matter of going to God in prayer, constantly being before God in prayer, and seeing the mission clearly. Lord, the gospel's the mission of, of my life. Help me, to, help me to live in such a way and to see the mission clearly and to love you to be generous to others, but also to be gracious in what I receive. I'll close with this verse from Proverbs, and I'll pray. Proverbs 38 and 9. Lord, feed me with the food that is my portion, that I not be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or that I not be in want and steal and profane the name of my God. Let's pray. Father, I hope I've been faithful to your word this morning. I hope I've laid before us a faithful dose of food. Father, may we be reminded continually of the gospel mission. May we see you as our greatest treasure. May we seek to pursue you, to know you more in your word, to be involved in the work that you are doing here in Greenville and Greer and the surrounding areas in our workplaces and our families. May we be engaged in it. May we trust you to provide what is needed for the good work that you have ordained for us. And we trust you in that. Give us wisdom and the use of our possessions as tools for the success of the mission you've laid out. Thank you for this group of believers, Father. Thank you for their heart. Thank you for their love for one another. Thank you for their generosity. May it grow, Father. May graciousness May generousness grow, that your kingdom would be advanced, and that your glory would be upheld. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.